This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ray, since it's been so hot out, you've been doing a lot of yard work like myself. How you feeling? I'm hot. I also realize that when you're out there and you're bending around in different positions, you're getting down on your knees. The fact is, I'm feeling it a little bit and I could use some CBD. And I'll tell you what, one CBD is really showing me that they know what to do when it comes to taking care of helping people with pain. Everything from soft gels to oils to gummies and salves and balms. And it's all online at OneCBD.com. I like the fact that they're organically grown. They are third-party lab tested. They are consciously created. It is is made in the USA. I personally like the gummies because I have a sweet tooth. It's all 100% organic. It's all made the best way with the best strains. And that's what's important when you're choosing a CBD product. And one of the many great things about their website that he has full disclosure so that you too can read up about it and find out what may work best for you. He personally had to find something that worked for him because of his medical issues. And Ty's story is right on the website. And if you go there, they'll give you 20% off your first order when you use the code BALANCE at OneCBD.com. That's OneCBD. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. Welcome to an episode of Five Favorites on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the guys who drive the bus. You can't do it without the drummers. They might be the single most important piece of the band at the end of the day. There's something about the drummer and what the drummer does that really impacts the sound of rock and roll. It can make or break a band. It really can. And I've read so many books and so many articles over the years, and so many of those books and articles have all said, to be a really good band, you need a great drummer. For this episode of Five Favorites, we're going to dig into our five favorite drummers of the 70s, as in the 1970s. Because I guess now we have to be more specific. (laughs) (laughs) Although I don't know any drummers from the 1870s, so we're good. Or the 1770s, for that matter. (laughs) That would be the drum and fife corps from the 1770s, you know. (laughs) They were good. Yeah, they were. Hey, man, they, they had it together i think they were on buddha man (laughs) 
As we dive into this episode of Five Favorites, we got to thank Ty and everybody at One CBD for their support of the podcast. Check Matt at onecbd.com. And who are friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro? They are right there at York and Montgomery Brew and the cure for what ails you since 2014. Thanks for their support. As we count them down, well, Marcus, before we move forward and start the countdown, we've got to go to Vegas to see what the line is, the over-under on how many we'll have in common on this week's episode. The over over under according to Vegas is 1.5. Wow, I thought it might be higher cuz I'm going to go higher and pick 3 as the number we'll have in common on this episode. I'm going to go low and say 1. All right, I guess we'll see how it plays out. Yes. And we've been doing a few more five favorites lately and I've been told once again that I always make you go first, so I will give my number 5 drummer of the 1970s. 1970s. Lay it on us. Number 5. When his drum company wanted to do an ad with Billy in it, they made it look like he was a man with four arms. Now you're thinking, wow, four arms. It's like, you know, halfway to an octopus playing the drums. And that, my friends, is the one and only Billy Cobham. His early work in Mahavishnu Orchestra meshed together the sounds of jazz and progressive and rock. He'd do solo work that would include one of my favorite jazz fusion albums of all time, Spectrum. He would go on to play alongside some of the truly greats in jazz. He was Miles Davis's drummer of choice throughout the 70s as a perfect example. Stanley Clark. Ron Carter. He even played with some R&B favorites like James Brown or the Brothers Johnson. Through it all, he increased his rock cred by just playing the hell out of the drums and rocking everything that he touched. My number five, Billy Cobham. It's a hell of a choice. Look at the repertoire of people he's played with. Look at the lineup of musicians he's played with. If you're playing with that many people in the 70s when there is so much insane amounts of talent making so much noise and the industry being as huge as it is, and yet you're being called upon to play with all these people, that says a lot about who you are and what you do. I know I'm stretching it a little bit because not everybody even knows who Billy Cobham is, but look him up. Marcus, your number five favorite drummer of the 70s? My number five favorite drummer of the 70s going to Birmingham, England. This band had a lot of symphony in their sound using electric violins, electric cellos, and a lot of spaceship-themed vibe in their music. Their frontman was once called a songwriter as great as Paul McCartney, but they were tired of all the spaceship shit in his music. I'm talking about the band Electric Light Orchestra, and the drummer is Bev Bevan. I remember listening to Face the Music, a new world record, and Out of the Blue over and over again on my turntable. El Dorado, I remember getting that album after having listened to those first three, and I really played the shit out of those ELO records in my young days. They're one of the bands that I've been able to fortunately move forward and pass on to my son that he really likes. Mr. Blue Sky is one of his favorite songs. So I would have to say the fact that he played the way he did, the fact that he made the music that he did and the sound was so huge at that time and so grand and so moving to a little seven, eight, nine, ten year old kid, they still stick with me. And looking over this list, I started listing all these drummers out and he definitely had to be in the top five for me. Think about the album Face the Music, the song Fire on High. You're talking about all the layers that they're putting up there, all the gingerbread up top.
up. But at the bottom of that song, listen and you hear him playing that driving drum line that the song loses all of its power and majesty without that. Well done at number five. What's your number four, mon frere? My number four is a guy who always played with a cigarette in his mouth. He is a funny dude. His band is from a little town in Illinois called Rockford, Illinois. And in the 70s, a friend of mine's older brother or sister played Live at Budokan for us. And I was so blown away by that album that I ended up getting Dream Police as soon as it came out. And Mm -hmm. I still love that band to this day. I think they're one of the most underrated, underappreciated rock and roll bands out there. And I'm talking about the band Cheap Trick and the drummer is Bun Bunny Carlos. And, uh, yeah, iconic with the way he had that jazz drummer-type cigarette always dangling off his lip, you know, uh, even in the middle of a set. So great drummer in his time. And he's, you know, not touring with the guys because I don't think he can handle the rigor of what Cheap Trick still does here in the 21st century. But still one of my favorite drummers, too, Bunny Carlos, man. Bunny Carlos is rad. Well, since I've done my five and four, that means, Ray, it is time for you to jump and share your number four. Number four got his nickname, which was an addition of little to his first name, when Big Ian joined the band. His time in Deep Purple through the decades and now the centuries. His time in White Snake and playing with Gary Moore and playing on more records than we have time to name here absolutely makes Ian Pace one of the most underrated drummers. Even with all the accolades that he gets, Ian Anderson Pace doesn't get the love that he truly deserves no matter how much they heap on here in the 21st century. My number four from Deep Purple, etc., Ian Pace. Deep Purple sound between the keyboards and the drums, just monstrous. And what that band did as far as opening eyes to sound and taking the heavy sound to a whole new level was mind-blowing. I remember hearing their music on the AOR stations in Colorado as a kid and just being like, what is this? And especially hearing some of it for the first time when it was played at night and I'd be up late night reading and listening to the radio and I'd hear this music come on and I'd be like, what is this? And then my Look, parents he could would drive be like, it. He could drive it on like Highway Star or one of those oh, yeah. high energy songs. But like, listen to the subtlety and the jazz tones at the beginning of something like Woman from Tokyo oh, yeah. where it's light and he could play all the tones, everything in between mm-hmm. and add to whatever the rest of the guys were cooking up at that point the sign of a great drummer but his role in deep purple especially makes him a hall of famer and uh, one of the all-time favorites in my book too my number four little ian ian pace and you mentioned very well that they not only a lot of these drummers hit with power but they have finesse and grace as well in their sound and we're going to see that throughout the rest of this list as ray jumps to number three with his third favorite drummer of the 70s He didn't come into the picture for a few years in the 1970s, but the time that Neil Peart spent in Rush and uh, the impact that he made for that band and then in turn for all of rock and roll because of what Rush has come to mean to all of us as they've grown and spread to become one of the biggest bands, certainly out of Canada, if not all of the Americas in their time. When we lost him, it set off the kind of feeling in people that is hard to really explain people were still feeling that loss that pain 
when the pandemic hit because January 7th, 2020 isn't that long ago. But when you feel it and you think about it, it feels like it's been a long time since we lost Neil Elwood Pierce. And his importance to Rush goes without saying. He became the primary songwriter and you know thinker as far as where they would go as far as their multiple platinum successful years. He is one of the most technically proficient and most feel top shelf guys that lived and played in his time. And it's easy to make him my number three drummer of the 70s. I was expecting him to be a little higher. And I was actually... When we take the break, after we come back from the break, we'll get your number three, and we'll see where you have the mighty Neil Peart here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. What do you say? We take a pause for the cause, and when we come back, we'll finish the countdown to number one on our five favorite drummers of the 70s on the podcast. Well, I know what'll quench my thirst, and probably yours too, buddy, and that's a nice cold pint from Crook and I Brewery right there in the heart of Hatboro at York and Montgomery. They're easy to find, and when you get there, you're never going to want to leave. Uh, that place is such a great hangout. It's The beer's all really good. The staff is fantastic. Well, the music has returned to Crooked Eye, and people have returned to Crooked Eye. But don't forget to mask up, and that's necessary under state regulations. Uh, the guys at the pub are taking care to follow the governor's regulations, and you can keep up with not only what's going on there, but all the music and all the activities going on. And you can check out the online open mic. They've got a page, too. It's all about Crooked Eye on Facebook, and you can find out what you need to know. Their Facebook presence is fantastic, and they definitely do a great job at keeping people in the know as far as what's going on with Crooked Eye because we know people enjoy, like ourselves, enjoy a nice cold pint of beer, especially on a hot day like today. Go in and see what's on the board and have a nice, frosty, delicious summer pint. Pick it up at Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hatboro. Crooked Eye, supporting us here on the podcast and serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. Feeling refreshed and still we're trying to sort out what happened there at the end of the first half there. So you were just trying to tell me that you thought Neil would be higher on my five. Yes, I thought he would be number one or number two on your list. But again, with the list of drummers that we have researched and talked about, looked over, people could end up anywhere. It's true. It really is. Which brings us around in our little twisted countdown. Vegas line says 1.5, right? Yep. And you've gone one and I've gone three. And here's what we got as we uh, count down up to where we pick it off here, okay? I have Billy Cobham at number five with little Ian Pace from Deep Purple at number four. Neil Peart of Rush is number three. Your number five is ELO Bev Bevan. And uh, your number four is Bonnie Carlos from Cheap Trick. And your number three, sir, is... Uh, the same number three as yours, Mr. Neil ah, Peart from Rush. Oh, that's and... weird. I thought you'd have him higher. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got into Rush a little bit later than a lot of people. But, again, his impact on 
the music and some of the songs that they wrote in the 70s while most of the rush that i was familiar with was early 80s rush the stuff that he wrote in the 70s and the stuff that he played in the 70s was just magnificent and brilliant and it continued to be so throughout his entire career and i can't believe when you said that it was january of this year that neil peart passed away it feels like it was two years ago i swear to god because it feels like like a lot longer ago than just a few months neil peart number three for me that brings me around to my number two doesn't it we got your three what's your two dude my two dude is a guy who was a spider from mars he played at maybe the most important phase of David Bowie's career, but these albums have all had a huge impact on my life, and I started listening to Bowie in the 70s, Woody Woodmancy, Hunky Dory, The Rise and Fall yep. of Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin yep. Sane, all such important albums to me, and The Man Who Sold the World as well, and if you look at that album, that album is weird as fuck, but it is so good, and the drum beats on that album are just fantastic and he goes all over the place he hits with style he hits with finesse he hits with power when he needs to and you hear it in songs like moon age daydream so he plays all over the spectrum and he was a really really great drummer who really had an impact on bowie's sound maybe even more than bowie would ever admit at that time well they always say that if you can remember that time period you weren't there but the difference is Woody Woodmancy can remember it all. He talks a lot in Ken Scott's book about those times because Ken was behind the console for that period of time in Bowie's career. So great stuff. I love it. It, it threw me a little a little, uh, little curveball there with your Woody Woodmancy at number two. My number two should be no surprise. I'm reading Roger Daltrey's book. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibblewhite. And in there, he kind of frames the whole Keith Moon part of the discussion earlier in the book by saying he was the last in he was the first out and that's you know when you think about it moon joined them in the who before their slight ride around as the high numbers before coming back to the who and he was the guy that really completed what they had once they had him they knew daltrey says he knew right away even before moon himself he said he was never formally invited to join the who but in roger's book he kind of reminds and explains how it happened as well as other great stories but yeah his playing his spirit what they called on uh, one TV show, the sloppy drums that he played, and not to mention his propensity for mischief and chicanery and what do you call shenanigans? Shenanigans. Driving cars into pools and then setting off explosions on television shows, deafening the techs and Pete at one point. Keith Moon was also one unfucking believable drummer. When you listen to his lines, when you listen to his roles in the Who songs that he played on, there's nobody else like him in that regard and again you're talking about jazz his feels coming from that jazz side of england's playing history and you know you mentioned the jazz but keith moon the way he hit those those british drummers from that era hit the drums so freaking hard but yet they did it so gracefully and the way they were able to take those jazz beats and hit them hard and do what they did with the power it's mind-blowing because they changed rock and roll drumming that whole group from great britain at the time the yardbirds drummer jim Mm -hmm. mccarty bonham 
you know, also uh, Keith Moon from The Who. And then you combine Keith Moon with John Entwistle. And boy, that is one of the most ferocious rhythm sections in the business, if you think about it. Those two together. I don't even together. have to think about it, Marcus. It absolutely <laughs> was. It was unbelievable. They were poetry in motion, at, you know, 125 miles an hour and 125 decibels. It was incredible. Oh, yeah. They, and I'll bet you drummers could tell us, uh, that no, could tell us technically how Moon could do what he did with the power that would go from the end of that stick into the skin right at that moment to get that kind of sound. But for him to do it in, I don't know what, where they are, the 32nd, 64th, 128th notes, I don't know. The way he would roll across a kit and get so much power and energy out of it, the way he could roll up the energy and keep up with all the other shit that was going on a stage with The Who was a one-of-a-kind guy and um, I think you can divide their really their their history into two parts uh, before Moon's death in 1978 and after. Absolutely. And as we sit here, uh, we're just coming up on the anniversary again. So long may he rest and play in peace. The great Keith Moon, my number two. Great and choice. I believe that means I go to number one now, don't that I? That is correct. We've only got one left. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, how many do we have in common so far? One. one. Okay. One in common so far. Hmm, interesting. Your you're, your bet's riding good so far with Vegas, dude. This is where I lose the bet. My number one would seem to be obvious. He is most well-known and most accomplished at having been the guy who made Led Zeppelin fly. The other guys could guide. They could write. They could cajole it in the direction. But when it came down to it, John Bonham was at the pilot seat of Led Zeppelin every time they went in the studio, every time they went on a stage. And he didn't do much outside of uh, Led Zeppelin at all, really. He had just very few credits outside of Led Zeppelin. He just, him and, and Plant got in with the right guys at the right time, and they went to work. And for him, he was more, in my mind, was more like a hard hat, lunch pail kind of guy. And he, when he went to work with Led Zeppelin, no matter where it was, there was no fucking around. He was going to deliver the goods in a studio, on the road, in a studio practice, whatever it was, he was delivering. And that's why he's my number one. I think he's, again, one of, like Moon, has a unique sound. And ironically, his son Jason is the only drummer I've known to be able to completely duplicate that sound as far as the tone and texture and everything. Conversely, it's Ringo Starr's son, Zach Starkey, who can replicate the sound of Keith Moon in the modern day performances done by The Who and does an amazing job and has for a long time as their drummer. So it's all related. We talk about it. Go back to the 60s and you come here to the, you know, to the 2020 and it's all still connected. Um, <laughs> that only leaves one thing left, my friend, before we get into some honorable mentions. And I have to ask, who is your Number one drummer of the 1970s, sir. Well, to continue the conversation of the amazing rock and roll animal we were just talking about, John Henry Bonham of Led Zeppelin, my number one drummer of the 70s. What that guy did behind the kit, mind-bending. And the fact that he was self-taught mostly says a lot more about his natural skills and his natural gifts that he was able to pick it up mostly probably by sound and by watching and imitating and I think without having instruction to be able to pick up like that is pretty impressive and very impressive and the fact that he was able to do it and if you listen to their entire catalog where he just absolutely murders the drum kit but then there are times where he is so graceful and like gentle with the drums but the sounds are always 
always beautiful that come out of the percussion and out of the rhythm section of Led Zeppelin. They were a tour de force as well. Together, just like Keith Moon and uh, Entwistle, Bonham and John Paul Jones are a force of nature as a rhythm section. And there's our five favorites, <laughs> drummers of the 1970s. We share the number one in Bonzo, and that means we have two in common, and uh, Vegas is smiling because they don't have to pay you, they don't have to pay me. But we got a field goal right in the middle. We split the uprights. <laughs> hey, uh, what do you got on your uh, honorable mentions? Because I know you have a few. Uh, I have quite a few. Some of them include Alex Van Halen, who was only in the 70s a short time and more of an 80s drummer. But the Van Halen sound in 76 through 78 before they started recording. And then when they released one and two in 78 and 79, really set up the 80s Southern Cal hair band scene yep, and the sure 80s did. rock scene. Without Van Halen, we didn't have that. And his influence on drumming is huge. Frank Beard from ZZ Top deserves props. He's a great drummer. He's one of my favorites. Phil Rudd from ACDC, I think, deserves props. Yep. Bill Bruford. Bruford's um, on my list, too, because he did different things. He not only was in Yes at a time when I was really into the band, he then went on, you know, doing stuff with Crimson and everybody else. So definitely uh, one of my favorite, most influential drummers of the 70s. Barrymore Barlow, I think, deserves some props as a great drummer playing with Jethro Tull through the 70s. But that's pretty much, and then of course uh, Jeff Porcaro, but I think he was more of an 80s drummer. I know yeah. they were studio drummers a little bit in the 70s and rolling into the early 80s. So, Well, let me, let me give you somebody who deserves to be on this list for the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even the 90s Who? that you didn't mention and neither of us mentioned Charlie Watts. Uh, Charlie Watts has been there as the human timekeeper since the beginning of time as it seems and he's still holding down the seat in the fantastic Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. I got Carl Palmer on my list. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you may not fully have felt the impact of their music in the 70s, but he was one of the great drummers of our, of our time. I believe his skills are finally starting to wear down a little bit because he, like Peart or Billy Cobham, was a very powerful, fast player and a st surely a great player. Roger Taylor from Queen, who is often cited for his other skills as a member of the band, but his drumming is unique and powerful. The tandem in Genesis in the uh, 70s was Phil Collins and Chester Thompson. So when Phil started doing the front of the house, uh, Chester was the drummer who kept things together for them. And believe it or not, my last honorable mention is a guy who played a lot of drums on a lot of his albums in the 19th 70s. I'm saying Paul McCartney is one of my uh, honorable mentions amongst the great drummers of the 70s. My favorite drummers of the 1970s. And I started looking at that and I, started, I figured that out and I started looking at the records that he was the drummer on. I went, you know what? He's a pretty good fucking drummer in those days. Bill Ward from Sabbath was a nice drummer too in the 70s. Had some good sound. There's a lot of talk about whether Ward is at the higher level of players at the time. He was in a great band. He contributed a lot to the band's sound. But you notice that we didn't really talk about him until now. True. And and part of that is the reason is that he's as great of a drumming sound and a great drummer as he brought to the table. I don't think he's often thought of amongst some of the, the upper tier of uh, drummers in rock history. I don't know if that's right or not, but I think that's that's what's going on. So, five favorites. Here we are again. Somehow we 
managed to count it down the right way this time. That's always a bonus. We did. And, uh, but we probably fucked up something. <laughs> so feel free to email us. Uh, it's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on social media and the website in case you're finding us somewhere else. I don't know where they would be finding us. Maybe they're finding us on the Pantheon Podcast Network because we're big on there. We're, we're out every week right there as it comes out. You can find new episodes there or on our website, imbalancehistory.com or wherever, whatever app you're on. Uh, a lot more people finding us on Spotify lately and mm-hmm. Pandora too. It's yeah. so, so interesting to find out where people find us. And if you like our podcast, please share them with your friends. We'd love to. Yeah. We'd love for you to spread the word. And if you have any feedback again, we always love feedback. If we make a mistake or get something wrong, imbalancehistory at gmail.com or hit us on one of our social media pages. Please, please, please. We love to interact with you. We love to hear what you have to say. And if you want to share your five favorite drummers of the 70s, we would love to absolutely know who your five favorite drummers of the 70s are. Look, it's always fun to explore an episode of Five Favorites, and it's just what we like. We want to hear what you like, too, any way you can tell us. And don't feel like you got to, you know, do anything more than put your hand up. If you just want to let us know where you're listening from, that email comes in handy just so we know where you are. We're trying to find out what's going on with this thing as we continue to grow here on Doc Doc Media and the Pantheon Podcast Network. Well, that's going to do it, man, for this episode of Five Favorites. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we're going to catch you next time right here on The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.